very warm welcome to our first Reformation Anglicanism lecture. I'm Jonathan Limeball. I'm the Anglican Chair of Divinity here, and it's my honor to have you here. And I'm just looking out, and it's just such a wonderful variety of people. I mean, I see students, I see alumni, I see some fellow faculty members, some Beeson staff, I see friends and supporters of Beeson. Um, I see our speakers parents, Paul and Mary Zoll. It's so great that you could be here. They've shared 50 years of marriage and shared ministry right near the bedrock of Reformation Anglicanism, and it's great to have you here. I also see some friends from our local parishes, Anglican parishes and Episcopal churches and others, and it's just so good to have you here. I see some of our clergy, some of whom are Beeson graduates, like Father Michael Novotny, and it's just great to have you here. It's a real joy to have an opportunity to have this group of people in this space. So I'm grateful. I also want to say a special thank you to our Dean, Dr. Doug Sweeney, for supporting this and for welcoming this idea in this group of people. So thank you, Dr. Sweeney. And it's special to me as the current Anglican chair to have Beeson's original Anglican chair here. Dr. Gerald Bray is with us, and it comes at a nice time. Dr. Zoll, as I'll mention, will be speaking on the Book of Common Prayer, and our original Anglican chair of divinity has just written a companion to the Book of Common Prayer. It's only available in hardback. Don't buy it yet, sorry, Gerald. It's about to be in paperback, then buy it. Okay, that's what you wanna do. But it's an excellent volume, that's there. I also wanna say a, a welcome to, but it's also a thank you to, and a word on behalf of our co-sponsor for this event. This is a Peace and Divinity School Institute of Anglican Studies event, but we're co-sponsoring it with the Wittenberg Center of Reformation Studies. And we have Ashley Knoll, who's the founder and director of that here with us this evening. Ashley, it's so good you can be here. And we're so excited to partner with the Wittenberg Center, whose mission is really to continue to study and to teach the history and the theology of the English Reformation for the sake of ministering and communicating the gospel that was reconnected with in the Reformation. And that's part of what we're trying to do tonight. And to that end, I want to tell you just a very brief story from the early days of the English Reformation. Then I'll say a prayer as I introduce our speaker, and I'll be done. But here's a story. This is 1519. This is two years after Martin Luther posted his 95 theses. But we're not in Germany. We're in England. We're in the town of Cambridge, where our speaker lives, at a little college called Trinity Hall. And there was a gentleman, a scholar, named Thomas Bilney, who got his hands on a copy of a Latin translation of the Greek New Testament because he heard the Latin was really impressive. And this is what he said. He said, at long last, I got a New Testament as it was set forth by the scholar Erasmus, which I understood to be eloquently done by him. I was, if I'm honest, a lord by the Latin rather than the word of God, for at that time I did not know what it meant. I bought it. And by the providence of God, at first reading, I chanced to cross this sentence of St. Paul. O oh, sweet and comfortable sentence to my soul. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. This one sentence, through God's instruction and inward working, did so exhilarate my heart, being before wounded with the guilt of my sins and being almost in despair, that immediately I felt a marvelous comfort and quietness, insomuch that my bruised bones leapt for joy. And the mission of the Wittenberg Center for Reformation Studies of Peace and Divinity School and the Institute of Anglican Studies is, is to do theology and ministry in a way that's honest about 
bruised bones, but also that speaks and ministers a comfortable word that can make them leap for joy. And to that end, it is my real honor to have as our speaker tonight, our lecturer, Professor Simeon Zoll from the University of Cambridge. He's professor of Christian theology there and a fellow of Jesus College. He has that university and collegiate connection with Thomas Cranmer, so it makes him a particularly fitting speaker for tonight. Professor Zoll, I think it was in 2004 that he moved for 10 months to England, and now has been there 19 years. So you need to be a little careful about these things. But he did his PhD at the University of Cambridge, had postdoctoral fellowships at Cambridge and Oxford, a lectureship at the University of Nottingham, and is now professor of Christian theology at Cambridge University. I could list his publications. They are impressive and interesting. I will just highlight this one, The Holy Spirit and Christian Experience, which is an absolutely fantastic book, not just about Christian theology, but about the way Christian theology makes a real difference at the level of human living and hoping. And the truth is, that's a thread that runs through Professor Zoll's work, and which is why I was grateful when he accepted the invitation tonight. If there's a major refrain in his scholarship and writing and teaching, I think it's that the lived context and the pastoral horizon of theology is a compassionate realism about human need and a ministering of the mercy of God that sets free, forgives, and consoles as a real, concrete, comfortable word. So before we hear him, let's pray in that vein. And this is a prayer, a collect from the Book of Common Prayer. It changed a little bit from when Thomas Cranmer wrote it, over 113 years to 1662. But I think it gets some of our themes for tonight, so please pray with me. O Almighty God, who alone canst order the unruly wills and affections of sinful men and women, grant unto thy people that they may love the thing which thou commandest, and desire that which thou dost promise, so that among the sundry and manifold changes of this world, our hearts may surely there be fixed, where true joys are to be found, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. It is my distinct pleasure to welcome, and I invite you to welcome with me, our speaker, Professor Simeon Zoll, who will be speaking to us on the Book of Common Prayer, Thomas Cranmer's Theology of the Heart. Simeon. Well, it is an honor uh, and a delight to be with you this evening in Birmingham, which I consider my hometown, although I haven't lived here in some time. And it's an honor to be here for the first annual lecture in Reformation Anglicanism. I'm grateful to Doug Sweeney, Beeson Divinity School, to Professor Leinbaugh, and to the, Center, the Wittenberg Center for Reformation Studies for making all of this possible. I'm grateful to all of you for coming along. I think the last time I was in this room, I was snuck out of high school to hear the great Reformation scholar Heiko Obermann give a lecture. This would have been in the mid-90s, uh, and so I feel it's, um, it's an honor to be here. A few years ago, I came across a term that I have found extremely illuminating for thinking about a topic that is of great interest to me. That topic is the relationship between theology and Christian experience. So a colleague of mine at the University of Pennsylvania, named Donovan Schaefer, refers to something that he calls, and bear with me, affective technologies. Affect is just basically a, a scholarly term for emotion and feeling. 
What Schaefer has in mind when he talks about affective technologies are, here's a definition, things that human beings have created or devised to help evoke certain kinds of feelings in us, certain kinds of emotions, and that help to shape and generate human desires. So for example, a roller coaster is an affective technology. It's a thing that human beings have designed with the express purpose of making you experience a particular set of feelings, a certain kind of physical fear and excitement in a safe and controlled way. So the point of a roller coaster is not to take you from point A to point B, is to make you feel both fear and exhilaration, things that human beings for some reason seem to enjoy enough that we pay money to do this. Really, we could just as well refer to affective technologies as technologies of the heart. So I'll use those two terms interchangeably tonight. It's technologies for evoking feelings. A technology of the heart, though, doesn't have to be a physical object. Take, for example, the kind of movies called tearjerkers, the ones where you know that one of the main characters or that you're meant to sort of grow and love uh, will then probably die in the end, and you'll be very sad. These two are technologies of the heart. They're human-made cultural artifacts that are very effective at generating a particular kind of emotion. But really, all sorts of things can be considered affective technologies. An antidepressant is an affective technology, a drug prescribed to help us to feel certain debilitating moods and feelings less strongly, less overwhelmingly than we otherwise would to help us cope with ourselves and with the world. Music, of course, is the most powerful technology of the heart of all. Few things have greater power than music to generate feelings in us and to unearth what we're really feeling deep down. And although, of course, with music this can be extraordinarily subtle, some aspects are not subtle at all. As any songwriter or worship leader knows, sometimes all you need to evoke powerful feelings in a group of people is a well-timed key change, affective technology. Now, not all affective technologies are as big and obvious as a key change or a roller coaster. Some are elegant and subtle. I live in England, a country that is full of beautiful medieval churches built in the Gothic style. Such churches are, in fact, amongst other things, affective technologies. Their size and their pillars and their long tapering arches, they're designed to make you look up to God and to feel how small you are and how big he is, and in this way to sort of draw you out of yourself and put you in a frame of mind for worship. Just watch a kid walk into uh, a cathedral, as my kids have done more often than they probably want to. They, they look up. It's the, the, the building is made to make you feel a certain way. Of course, sometimes affective technologies can produce feelings we think are false or inauthentic. Just think of propaganda or the way that social media is often calibrated to make you feel envious of other people's lives because then, you'll, 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 then it becomes sticky. But I think it's important to say at the beginning, just because something is evoked, generated by an affective te technology, that doesn't mean the feelings involved are necessarily bad or inauthentic. Far from it. Just think of those cathedrals or of the last song that made you cry. The fact that someone did it on purpose doesn't mean it's not real. So why am I talking about technologies of the heart? Well, what I'm interested in exploring with you this evening is the way that church services 
can be understood as technologies of the heart. Church services are in many ways instruments for leading people into certain kinds of feelings and emotional states. More specifically, I want to explore what I take to be perhaps the most profound, elegant, and emotionally wise set of church services ever devised, and I'm, I'm not at all biased, Thomas Cranmer's Book of Common Prayer, which, as most of you will know, is the classic book of services for Anglican Christians. Examining how this remarkable book functions as a highly sophisticated technology of the heart will, I think, give us a few new insights about the prayer book, insights into why its services are structured the way they are, about the choices of words that Cranmer makes, and the rhythms and cadences that the services follow, and ultimately, about the theology that is expressed in them. But I also hope that by examining the prayer book as an affective technology, this will help shed some light on the nature and purpose of Christian worship itself. By the end of our time together this evening, I hope we'll understand Cranmer and his liturgy better, but I also hope we'll have some new theological principles to take with us to make our own ministries and Christian practices more helpful, more emotionally authentic, more lastingly meaningful. Now, I want to start by diving straight into the text of the prayer book to show some of the fascinating ways that its liturgies seek to foster emotional experience in people who participate in its services. You have a handout where all the bits that I'm going to talk about, the main bits I'm going to talk about are all there. Um, there are parts that I've not included, um, but so do, do, I'll try to indicate where to follow along. I'm going to focus on two services in particular, the service of morning prayer, part of what is called the daily office, and the order for Holy Communion. I'll then zoom out a little bit to talk about what's going on at the level of theology. What is the theological basis for Cranmer's clear interest in shaping our emotions and affections? Why were the particular emotions the order of services, orders of service focus on so important in his view? And finally, I'll conclude by drawing out some principles we can draw from Cranmer's liturgies for thinking about Christian worship and practice today. First, though, just a very brief bit of background for those who may not be as familiar uh, with these details. Some of the people most familiar with those details in the whole world are in this room, but we're not all, uh, we're not all Ashley Knoll. The Book of Common Prayer was first put together in the mid-16th century to set out the main orders of service for the Church of England in the aftermath of the break with the Catholic Church in the Reformation. It's one of many books of services put together during this period as Protestants across Europe sought to reform church life in light of their new theological principles. The prayer book is also a book with a complex history. It's gone through several important editions, the initial version of 1549, authorized by King Edward VI, the second edition of 1552, which we'll be looking at today, uh, which expanded the 1549 version a bit, made a few further changes, and then another very important edition is the 1662 edition, which kind of set it in stone for until the 20th century. It was, that was, became the language that, that um, English, so much English Christianity sort of, English Christians lived their lives by, by this language for many hundreds of years. Although other people were involved at various points, all three versions are widely understood to represent, above all, the theological vision and liturgical genius of Thomas Cranmer. Cranmer was Archbishop of Canterbury under King Henry, Henry VIII and then Edward VI, burned at the stake in 1556 as part of Queen Mary's short-lived attempt to roll back the Reformation in England. Close to my own heart, as uh, Dr. Linebaugh mentioned, though, is the fact that Cranmer spent much of his life in Cambridge, England, my town, 
as a student and then as a fellow at Jesus College. Two years ago, I had the honor of succeeding Professor Leinbaugh as the fellow in theology at Jesus. So it's hard not to feel a certain kinship with the man. And indeed, just eight days ago, I was preaching at Evensong in the chapel that is the space that is likely to have shaped his feel for the rhythms of liturgy as much as any space. So for tonight's purposes, the text we'll be looking at is the 1552 edition of the prayer book, and the, um, which is in your handout. It's important to say, though, that most of what I'm saying, I think, does apply equally uh, to later editions, since the things I'm talking about are, are, many of them at least, are the same. So, as we turn to look at these services, I'm going to make one main argument, namely that the Cranmer's prayer book is a technology of the heart, and indeed that it is one of quite unusual subtlety and theological and religious power. As I'll seek to show, in the service of morning prayer, and then especially in Holy Communion, Cranmer crafted these liturgies to help stimulate a series of specific emotional states in the congregation. And of course, it's not all these services do or were designed to do, but I do think it is a major and central feature, as we will see. So what emotional states am I talking about? First, Cranmer's services are concerned to evoke in the congregation a feeling of heartfelt repentance for sin. They don't want us to just recite that we are sinners as a kind of theological fact, or to ask God for forgiveness in a mechanical way. These services are designed to help you to actually undergo the experience of repentance as something that you genuinely feel as a human being standing before your God. But they also don't leave you there. Next, they want you to feel and experience the goodness of God, his graciousness and his love for you as it is conveyed in the Christian gospel. Once again, the prayer book doesn't want you to simply assert that God is gracious with words, though that is sometimes how it felt when I was a kid growing up uh, with this liturgy. Uh, what it wants you to do is to actually spiritually and existentially be comforted and consoled with the good news while you're there in the pew, in the particular circumstances of life that you bring to the services. And finally, these services want to lead you into a new emotional space where you experience a sense of peace as well as gratitude and praise for God. There's a history, uh, especially Protestants have a way of kind of reading past all the emotional language in our history, in Luther, in Melanchthon, in Calvin, in Cranmer, as a kind of it's epiphenomenal, it's like a side effect, a symptom, uh, a, a thing that, that just happens to be there to make it sound rhetorically nice. And I've spent a lot of the last few years trying to show that those arguments about emotion and emotional experience in these texts, like what we're gonna see tonight, are actually fundamental to what they think they're doing and to the theological arguments they're making. So let's start with one of my favorite parts of the whole prayer book. The general confession, right near the start of morning prayer. I will say uh, it's possibly the greatest prayer of confession ever written, if, if, if there's a ranking or a competition. Um, unlike much of the prayer book, Cranmer seems to have composed this one from scratch using a series of biblical images. I'm gonna read this whole thing. It's on your handout. Almighty and most merciful Father, we have erred and strayed from thy ways like lost sheep. We have followed too much the devices and desires of our own hearts. We have offended against thy holy laws. We have left undone those things which we ought to have done, and we have done those things which we ought not to have done, and there is no health in us. But thou, O Lord, have mercy upon us, miserable offenders. Spare thou them, O God, which confess their faults. Restore thou them that be penitent according to thy promises declared unto mankind in Christ Jesus our Lord. 
and grant, O most merciful Father, for his sake, that we may hereafter live a godly, righteous, and sober life to the glory of thy holy name. Amen. One of the wonderful things about liturgy, I could recite that in my sleep, as I'm sure quite a few people here probably could too. So what is it that I think is so extraordinary about this confession? The first crucial thing to point out is that it recognizes that it is not a straightforward thing to bring someone to a place, to a repentant state of mind. I mean, imagine, you know, when you, when you catch your kid, not that this has ever happened in my family, but when you catch your kid who's little with the iPad watching some, you know, YouTube and he's not supposed to, his response is not, oh, you're right, I shouldn't have done that. The response is, it's not my fault, I thought I could, or to run away and hide, right? We don't do well with, with judgment as human beings. And Cranmer knows this. He knows he can't just dive in with a bunch of hard talk about sin and expect to actually get anywhere with people. He knows he needs to ease us into it. So he starts, famously, with sheep. We have erred and strayed from thy ways like lost sheep. The image is drawn from many scriptural texts, especially Isaiah 53, but with echoes of Psalm 23, Matthew 18, and many others, a lot of sheep in the Bible. But notice how it immediately leads with compassion. First, sheep are not villains. Sheep are not rebels. They get lost not because they are vicious, but because they are stupid. Consistent with this, erring and straying are things that happen sort of by accident or through negligence rather than through active intention. As any reader of the Bible is also aware, lost sheep are God's specialty. He loves to go find lost sheep and rescue them. So this first picture, this image of, uh, of sin is one that actually isn't that hard to get on board with. He's, got a, he's easing us in. Say, okay, yeah, maybe I've made some mistakes. I've probably wandered across some paths. I could use some guidance back onto the right path. I didn't really know what I was doing. I feel understood. Then we have followed too much the devices and desires of our own hearts. Just by contrast, imagine if he'd said, we have followed our own wicked desires. That would have a very different feel and effect. That would convey that our desires, the desires of our hearts are simply bad. And no one really feels like their deepest desires are bad to the core. And of course, God thinks that this human desire is fundamentally good. Desires go wrong not because they are intrinsically bad, but when they go out of proportion or get attached to the wrong object. Too much. It's the right Augustinian word for what happens with desire. And then we have devices and desires. This brilliant alliteration, brilliant rhythm of words. But also devices. It's a great word. Now we have a little more agency, little things we put together. A little bit of intentionality now, a little bit of agency. And then we get Cranmer's pitch-perfect bit about doing what we ought not to have done and leaving undone those things which we ought to have done. It's not just what you've done, it's the good you've failed to do as well. You may think you're doing a lot of good. We can all think of good we could have done that we haven't done. And then finally, we get the reminder that God is merciful, that in Christ he's already promised to forgive all our sins. Spare thou them which confess their faults according to thy promises declared unto mankind in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is what I mean by affective technology. This is brilliant affective technology. We are led into a space where we can potentially at least acknowledge our sin. We're led into it not abruptly or harshly, but gently and thoroughly in a way that at every point conveys compassion and doesn't sort of set up that fight-or-flight response. One final comment on morning prayer. 
The confession and absolution are rapidly followed by a reading of Psalm 95, a psalm that expresses exactly the feelings a person might hope to feel after being forgiven by a loving God of sins they genuinely regret. O come, let us sing unto the Lord. Let us heartily rejoice in the strength of our salvation. That way, heartily always means hearts, by the way. Let us come before his presence with thanksgiving and show ourselves glad in him with psalms, for the Lord is a great God, and we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hands. No accident. Praise, wonder at God's greatness and goodness. Gratitude is not random that these are the things Cranmer has us express after the absolution. All this is the affective outcome of the experience of forgiveness. Forgiven of our sin and encountering God's grace, we are freed from the tyranny of our own problems to start thinking about the greatness of God. Okay, let's turn now to the communion service. This service starts with a very old prayer called the College for Purity. Almighty God, unto whom all hearts be open, all desires known, and from whom no secrets are hid, cleanse the thoughts of our hearts by the inspiration of thy Holy Spirit, that we may perfectly love thee and worthily magnify thy holy name through Christ our Lord. Amen. Now, there are quite a few things happening in this extraordinary prayer. First, you might have noticed by now, this is a prayer that is all about hearts and desires, explicitly. Indeed, for those of you who know the theology of St. Augustine of Hippo, this is pure Augustine. So at this point, at the start of the service, we are already being primed to think about our feelings, our longings, our desires. Second, the colic brings to the surface of our attention the fact that our secret heart is not, in fact, secret to God. Something we know in theory, but maybe forget in practice. We're being primed to remember, oh yeah, God knows what's going on. It reminds us that here today, in this service right now, it is best to feel honest about what's really going on, best to be honest about what's really going on. Whatever we go on to feel in this service, God is there, and God knows. And third, although the collect is all about our impurity, it is, like the general confession from morning prayer, phrased in a way that is remarkably unjudgy. It's actually very compassionate. Although the prayer does assume that our hearts are not pure, it also assumes that that's not really something in our power to change. It's a prayer for the Holy Spirit to do what we can't do. So already we have a whole vision here in the opening prayer of human sin and God's grace both understood as matters of the heart. Interestingly, this collect was not written by Cranmer. He took it over more or less wholesale from earlier medieval sources and changed just a single word. If it ain't broke, don't fix it. After the College for Purity, Cranmer once again is concerned to bring our status as sinners in need of God to our awareness and to do so experientially, not just conceptually. Thus, next comes the Decalogue, Ten Commandments. Do not murder, do not steal, do not have any gods before me, and so on. It's there on your handout. But Cranmer also knows very well, like his great influences, Augustine, Martin Luther, Philip Melanchthon, that human beings have a very hard time hearing God's law. Our instinct, as we've said, is to feel judged by it, of course, and to flee from it, to close ourselves off from it. So Cranmer anticipates how bringing the law to bear on people can so easily go wrong, how it risks alienating the congregation from the service rather than bringing them along with it. So he adds this response for the congregation to say after each commandment, Lord, have mercy upon us and incline our hearts to keep this law. Ten times we hear a commandment and ten times we say these words, have mercy upon us and incline our hearts to keep this law. 
What this response does is help us to be able to hear the law without immediately just putting our guard up. The proper response to God's law, Cranmer is showing us, is neither self-righteousness nor despair. Rather, it's to orient us towards God and his mercy. This is judgment not for its own sake, but for the sake of mercy. And then, once again, the appeal for God to do what is needed, knowing that following the law is a matter of the heart, and that we ourselves do not have much power over our sinful hearts. Incline our hearts to keep this law. So overall, here we have the divine law in all its reality and force, but it's conveyed in a way that shows knowledge and compassion about what it's like to be a sinner, wisdom about what, how we hear these things, and which points us not to despair, but to God. Then, after some prayers and the creed, there's a section urging the congregation to repent of sins they've now been drawn to feel. And then we get the invitation to communion, which contains a kind of summary, I think, of Cranmer's whole view of what this service is about. Addressed to the congregation, we hear, draw near and take this holy sacrament to your comfort. I think I put that in bold on the handout. Draw near and take this holy sacrament to your comfort. This, I would argue, is what the sacrament of the Lord's Supper actually is for Cranmer. It is a comfort, a consolation, a balm to the soul for anxious sinners. We are all here in this church service to be helped, to be helped in a way that we can really feel. That's what the communion service is ultimately about. After this, we have a different general confession, nearly as wonderful as the one from morning prayer and a bit more intense. I'm going through this in detail because I want to show there's a whole sequence going on here. There's a whole way, sort of... Um, you're being led uh, in a, in a, along a path. Almighty God, Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, maker of all things, judge of all men, we acknowledge and bewail our manifold sins and wickedness, which we from time to time most grievously have committed. Grievously also means grief, not just seriousness. He talks about uh, opening your sin as opening your grief uh, in an earlier part of the prayer, prayer, prayer book. By thought, word, and deed against thy divine majesty, Provoking most justly thy wrath and indignation against us, we do earnestly repent and are heartily sorry for these our misdoings. The remembrance of them is grievous unto us. The burden of them is intolerable. Notice here again how Cranmer characterizes sin as something that we feel over and over again, not just something that we rationally acknowledge that we have. We acknowledge and bewail our manifold sins and wickedness. We have provoked God's wrath and indignation we earnestly repent and are heartily sorry, sorry from our hearts. Remembrance of our sins is grievous unto us. The burden of them is intolerable. This is deeply biblical language, but it's also profoundly existential. Cranmer's evoking a feeling of being weighed down, trapped, tired and weak under the weight of our frail and broken nature. I'm reminded of Martin Luther over there. Martin Luther's brilliant line from his commentary on Psalm 51. The knowledge of sin is the feeling of sin. There's so much feeling in the Reformers, it's uh, easy to miss. Actually, it's not easy to miss once you look for it. To know our sin, in other words, we have to feel it. And feel it we do, like a great weight we carry around, pressing down on the soul. And then at the climax in this prayer of our misery, we're given new words to speak. The great cry, have mercy upon us, have mercy upon us, most merciful Father, for thy Son, our Lord Jesus Christ's sake. This, again, is not a ritual intonation of a need for mercy. This is an emotionally charged plea. That is why Cranmer, normally so very concise, so very quick to say have fewer words rather than more, nevertheless, he has us repeat it twice. Have mercy upon us, have mercy upon us. 
And the next words remind us that God is, in fact, merciful, our most merciful Father. And what's more, this mercy has a reliable ground, the work of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is just brilliant stuff. It's simple, it's memorable, perfectly pitched to convey what is needed, in my view. Then the priest, and it's called the priest in 1552, proclaims God's forgiveness. But Cranmer isn't done. He's worked us into quite a serious state of concern over our sin, and so here he borrows a glorious idea from the Continental Communion Service put together primarily by the Strasbourg reformer Martin Bootser. The comfortable words, a series of verses meant to be read to the congregation about how God loves us and brings consolation and relief to sinners. Hear what comfortable words our Savior Christ saith to all that truly turn to him. Come unto me, all that travail and are heavy laden, picking up on the burden, sense of sin, and I shall refresh you, and so on. Remember, comfortable for Cranmer doesn't mean pillows. It means comforting, consoling. The German text inspired Cranmer, the word is toast, which is comforting, consoling, and has a kind of a compassionate connotation. But Cranmer still isn't done with the theme of sin and divine mercy. Soon after this, we get the prayer of humble access. For the sake of time, I won't dwell on this one other than to say that for Cranmer, we continue to need to be aware of our sin if we're going to find the climax, the communion itself, comforting. So then, the climax of the service, the actual act of partaking in the communion, where Christ's atoning work is conveyed personally to each member of the congregation in the form of a material sign, the bread and the wine eaten and drunk. What are we doing as we partake of the elements? We are partaking the sacrament to our comfort, as he's told us already. So it's only here, after several runs at it, that Cramer finally thinks, once we've actually partaken of communion, that we're ready to move on from sin and repentance to new feelings, a new state of mind and heart that comes from experiencing the comfort of the gospel. So next is the post-communion prayer. I won't read the whole thing, but you can see it on your handout. For the moment, the key thing to notice is that the purpose of receiving this spiritual food of Christ's body and blood is once again, it's psychological and emotional. It is to assure us of God's favor and goodness towards us. That is a directly psychological, relational thing to talk about. And also that we are truly members and corporate of Christ's body. And Cranmer helps remind us that the reason for all this, the ground on which he's, what he is describing, actually makes religious and emotional sense. He says, this has all been made possible by the merits of the most precious death and passion of thy dear son. Liturgies that aren't very good talk about emotion. They assert emotions we should be saying or that are good emotions, but they don't give you a reason. They haven't led you to a place where it matters. There's a place in Rite 2 where it talks about having courage, going off in courage, but courage hasn't been an issue anywhere in the service. It's just a random word that just appears, I mean, emotionally. It's nice, courage is good, but it's not... Um, doesn't have a logic the way that Cranmer's words always have an emotional logic. So, where was I? Um, so, Cranmer is not just telling us what we should feel. He's giving a specific psychologically and theologically plausible reason for feeling this way. We shouldn't just feel assured of God's favor because God is nice. That would be less psychologically profound, perhaps less believable, sinners that we are. The reason we can plausibly and genuinely feel assured of God's favor toward us is because of Jesus' death on the cross on our behalf. Where does all this leave us, affectively speaking? First, 
with the post-communion prayer of thanksgiving, which gives glory to God, gives thanks, and describes the goodness of God, much like Psalm 95 does in morning prayer. Once again, these aren't just nice things to include in a church service. They're things Cranmer thinks and hopes we will genuinely be feeling at this point, having been assured of God's graciousness and favor in spite of our sin. And then he leaves us with the final blessing, which ends the service. The peace of God, which passeth all understanding, keep your hearts and minds in the knowledge and love of God and of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. And the blessing of God Almighty, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost be amongst you and remain with you always. Amen. The service thus ends on a note of emotional peace and tranquility, the peace of God which passeth all understanding, a peace that Cranmer added to the old blessing out of Philippians 4. This is the crucial emotional denouement. We go forth in peace, and that's it. Dwell in this peace. Know you are blessed. Follow this God who has blessed you. We're not given any specific instructions on what to do, expectation on how to behave. The service simply ends when it has achieved its emotional purpose, to bring peace and comfort to the consciences of sinful human beings, to encounter with the grace of God and restored relationship with him worked in our hearts. So that's our whistle-stop tour of the affective sequence going on in the 1552 communion service in particular. I hope it's now clear just how much the communion service in particular is designed with the affective and emotional experience of the congregation in mind. The whole thing is a complex and elegant technology of the heart. But why? Why did Cranmer think it was so important for us to feel these things and in this particular sequence during the service? The fundamental answer, I believe, is that for Cranmer, this particular affective sequence is simply what it is like to come to saving faith. Faith for Cranmer is not an abstraction or a rational assent to information about Christ and his work. Faith in God is something that arises in the context of real feelings of one's sin and guilt, and its great sign is to have a real experience of consolation through the conviction that one's sins really are forgiven on account of Christ looks upon us with such favor. In other words, Cranmer's technology of the heart is designed to create conditions under which real and heartfelt faith can be evoked in the hearts of the congregation. There are just a few things I want to say to fill this out a bit more. The first is that this account of faith and my affective analysis of Cranmer's services more generally is deeply consistent, I think, with Ashley Null's account of Cranmer's communion liturgy as, quote, enshrining a Protestant theology of the affections in the very heart of his last Eucharistic liturgy. In his great book on Cranmer's theology, Ashley shows how Cranmer imbibed from Augustine and from the Lutheran reformer Philip Melanchthon, amongst others, a deeply Augustinian account of the heart of Christian life as the renovation and reordering of human desire through encounter with the free gift of God's justifying grace. In this affective Augustinian tradition, saving faith and emotional experience of comfort and consolation as a sinner are not fundamentally separate or distinct phenomena, broadly speaking. Now, I've become more and more convinced of the truth of Ashley's point over the years, particularly after I spent several years myself researching and writing about Philip Melanchthon's theology of justification by faith. Melanchthon is sort of the second most important Lutheran reformer, but hugely influential in the Reformation. Null points firmly uh, 
um, to Melanchthon's influence on Cranmer here, and the more I've studied Melanchthon's theology of the affections, the more convinced I have become that he is right, and indeed more generally of the strong influence of Lutheran soteriology on the theology of the prayer book. Melanchthon was the primary author of what has become known to theologians as the forensic or courtroom account of justification by faith. You've heard of forensic or courtroom account. You may not know that the first person to really articulate it in the form that you know it was Philip Melanchthon. And for Melanchthon, the theology of justification is deeply experiential and affective. In 1531, Melanchthon wrote a work called The Apology of the Augsburg Confession, which included what became arguably the most influential single piece of writing on the doctrine of justification in the Reformation period. Here, in Article 4, Melanchthon closely weaves arguments about the affective power of justification into his defense of the doctrine against Roman Catholic critics. Over and over again, he frames this in the language of what he calls consolation for troubled consciences. So defending the doctrine of justification, Melanchthon claims, for example, that, quote, the position we defend brings the surest consolation to godly consciences. Elsewhere, in a particularly famous passage, he describes coming to faith in profoundly experiential and emotional terms that resonate very closely with what we've been seeing in the prayer book. Here's Melanchthon. This is on your handout. Personal faith by which an individual believes that his or her sins are remitted on account of Christ and that God is reconciled and gracious on account of Christ receives the forgiveness of sins and justifies us because in repentance, that is, in terrors, faith consoles and uplifts hearts. It regenerates us and brings the Holy Spirit that we might be able to live according to the law of God, namely to love God. Terrors, repentance, consolation, uplifted hearts. For Melanchthon, writing 17, 18 years before the first edition of the prayer book, receiving the Holy Spirit and experiencing emotionally salient consolation through faith are simply the same thing, two sides of the same coin. And this Melanchthonian language of consolation is everywhere in the prayer book especially when you pay attention to Cranmer's preferred term for it in English, comfort. The comfortable words. Take this sacrament to your comfort. Elsewhere in the service, Cranmer calls the sacrament of bread and wine a comfortable thing to them that receive it worthily. He describes communion as instituted and ordained by Christ to our great and endless comfort. In his constant refrain of comfort and consolation, Cranmer's liturgy is deeply in line with the pastoral heart of specifically Lutheran understandings of justification by faith. In this context, it's worth reflecting on the fact that critics of Cranmer's prayer book have often accused it of being too psychological. Dom Gregory Dix, one of the most influential liturgical scholars of the 20th century, for example, strongly dislikes this aspect of Cranmer's liturgy, though he admits that it's brilliant. For Dix, a liturgy is either doing something properly religious, something metaphysical that participates in Christ's sacrifice and changes souls, or it is doing something merely mental and psychological, which to him is thin and individualistic and bad. What I've been trying to show and what the Melanchthon influence supports is that in Cranmer's case, I think Dix's dichotomy is shown to be a false choice. Coming to faith is not something different from experiencing a sense of one's sin and being comforted in that experience. Just because something is a psychological reality, an emotional reality, doesn't mean it isn't also a spiritual reality, a metaphysical reality. And Cranmer knows this. That's why his focus on real emotional experience is actually very thick and rich. He knows, for example, that eating the bread and wine can itself be psychologically and emotionally reassuring. 
that good religious psychology isn't just done with words. Good affective wisdom knows when not to say too much, when to let symbols speak, and when to let underdetermined and poetic words resonate out with meanings over weeks and years and centuries. One last quick comment on Lutheran influence. As many others have pointed out, including Zach here in the front row, we also see a Lutheran theological influence in the way that Cranmer's affective pedagogy, affective education, leads us through a law-gospel sequence, ending not in a new and distinct application of the law to Christians, a third use, but simply in, quote, the peace of God which passeth all understanding. Melanchthon, again, famously describes the affective sequence of justification in terms that by now should be very familiar to us in Cranmer. Melanchthon says, the law is the ministry of death which confounds, terrifies, and kills the conscience by exposing and revealing sin. The gospel is the ministry of the spirit, which consoles, strengthens, uplifts, and gives life to minds that were previously made to tremble in terror. So in light of this, my analysis of the prayer book as an affective technology would seem to be another thread supporting the view that Cranmer's liturgies are shaped by specifically Lutheran influences when it comes to his theology of salvation a law-gospel sequence, and a focus on real pastoral experience of comfort and consolation through the gospel are right at the heart of what he's doing in the Book of Common Prayer. Now, as I turn towards a conclusion, there are two more points that I want to draw out about what Cranmer's been doing in these services, points that I think have a wider theological as well as practical application. The first is to say that much of the power of Cranmer's liturgy is the result of his deployment in it of an acute psychological and emotional wisdom. We get nervous about the word psychology in, uh, in theology, but I'm saying we don't have to. Over and over again, Cranmer is anticipating how we are likely to react to things, and then modulating the language and the structure of the liturgy to draw us where he thinks we need to go. We saw this very clearly in the general confession from morning prayer. He knows we may not be thinking of ourselves as particularly full of sin on any given morning. So he starts with sheep. He knows that when we hear the Ten Commandments, we're all too prone to a fight-or-flight response. And so he needs to use language to remind us immediately that the liturgy is not judging us the way we might think, that it knows we can't help so much of our sin, that the only realistic thing to do is to ask for God's help. Have mercy upon us and incline our hearts to keep this law. And Cranmer knows that what broken and suffering human beings need in this fallen world, above all, is not advice or exhortation, but comfort and consolation. Draw near with faith and take this sacrament to your comfort. And then, unlike so many Christian services, he knows to trust the power of the gospel and leave us not with exhortation, but with peace, the peace of God which passeth all understanding. Keep your hearts and minds in the knowledge and love of God and His Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Closely related to this psychological and pastoral wisdom, Cranmer also knows the theological power of restraint. Over and over again in his liturgies, he says less rather than more. He explains what is going on, but only just enough. Let me just give one example, which I think is funny. Reformation humor. Um, this is from the part of the communion service called the Sursum Corda, the part where you say, lift up your hearts, we lift them up to the Lord. It's back earlier in your handout. Cranmer is drawing at the end of it on the version 
from the Protestant Order of Communion, put together by Martin Bootser in a text, text called The Consultation. Here's Bootser's version. So after the priest says, let us give thanks unto the Lord our God, and the people say it is meet and right, the priest then responds. This is on your handout in the last page. It is verily a thing worthy, right, and meet, and wholesome, that we give thanks unto thee always and everywhere, that we praise and magnify the Lord, Holy Father, Almighty, everlasting God, through Jesus Christ our Lord, by whom thou madest us out of nothing unto thy image, doctrine of creation from nothing, the doctrine of the image of God, and hast appointed all other creatures to our uses, the task of humanity in the context of creation, and whereas we through the sin of Adam sliding forth were made thine enemies, of doctrine of original sin, and therefore subject to death and eternal damnation, thou of thy infinite mercy and unspeakable love didst send the same Son, thy eternal word, and he goes on and on. Bootser is basically giving us in this paragraph, this very dense paragraph, a whole systematic theology. Doctrine of creation from nothing, the imago dei, the fall into original sin, the devil, the cross. I mean, when we teach the doctrine of creation from nothing at Cambridge, you give four lectures, four hours. He's doing what takes us three years to do in one paragraph. Um, then there's sanctification, and finally, eschatological praise. He's got it all. So here's Cranmer's version. The first four lines are basically identical. Lift up your hearts, we lift them up unto the Lord. Let us give thanks unto the Lord our God. It is meet and right, so to do. It is very meet and right, and this is where Bootser's version begins, right? And our bounden duty, that we should at all times and in all places give thanks unto thee, O Lord, Holy Father, Almighty, Everlasting God. That's it. Cranmer cuts all of the theologizing, basically. There are a few prefaces for special days, but basically, then they both move on to the sanctus. This is affective wisdom. Protestants, like me, have always had a weakness for theologizing and sermonizing when we need to be praying. A weakness for somehow assuming that it can only be a good thing if we say lots and lots of doctrinally correct things and keep using every chance we get to catechize people into having correct theology. Cranmer, of course, knows that any good litur liturgy does involve catechesis, teaching of doctrine. He himself explains what's going on theologically at various points, including in prayers. But he also knows that a little of this goes a long way, and that piling up too many concepts and images just means you're going to lose the congregation. They'll start thinking about their grocery list or the emails they need to write instead of about God. Cranmer's very good at keeping your attention. So here's a takeaway for any of you in ministry or hoping to go into ministry. Don't be Martin Bootser. In this respect, trust that saying things once is enough. That You don't have to beat the congregation over the head with the truth. Trust seasons and years for truth to be conveyed, not just you have to get it all in that one time. Trust that emotional experience is the key thing, not maximizing content. When in doubt, and I say this as a theologian who cares deeply about doctrinal minutiae, nevertheless, when in doubt, keep it about God and not about minutiae of doctrine. Be Cranmer, not Bootser. One more point about Cranmer's affective wisdom. This is particularly for those who might be involved in leading services, making liturgical choices for congregations week by week. Cranmer's service follows a very deliberate and sophisticated emotional and experiential sequence. And this is something that needs to be respected if the service is not to become either emotionally confusing or incoherent. His communion service is all about compassion on sin and the comfort of the gospel as it is conveyed by communion. 
This means that you need to try to convey, when you're doing this service, you need to try to convey the same sense of compassion yourself in your tone of voice and your body language, being reverent but also not taking yourself too seriously. This whole thing is about what ridiculous sinners we are. We're sheep in this story. You do this in your choice of music and, of course, in the kind of sermon that you give. In England, I'm sure there's none of this in America, but in England there's a certain way of doing the prayer book, especially in more formal and higher church settings, where the priest, I think, errs too much on the side of, of reverence and into seriousness and coldness, where they're so focused on the ritual actions that they forget to pay emotional attention to the congregation. My point here is that this isn't just bad pastoral practice, though I think, generally speaking, it is. My point is that it is actually going against the grain of the liturgy itself. You're at odds with yourself when you're doing that. Likewise, with a sermon, a sermon should be resonating with and amplifying the overall tone of comfort and consolation in light of human brokenness and need. It should leave, aim to leave people with a sense of peace. In this way, it will follow and reinforce the emotional logic of the service itself. This also means that if you change things up, and it's not always the end of the world to change things up. You might notice the Decalogue doesn't, wonderful as it is, we don't, get that, we don't do that part so much uh, these days, even when we do uh, a lot of this traditional service. Nevertheless, when you change things up, do so in a way that follows a clear emotional and experiential logic. Service needs to follow such a logic if you want it to really get traction on lives and souls. It's not some epiphenomenon. It's not a symptom or a side effect. It's part of the whole thing. A final point. There is a word for the kind of affectively wise theological restraint that Cranmer so brilliantly exhibits in the prayer book. That word, so I've given you the word affective technology or technology of the heart, and here's another one, under determination. Cranmer understood as well as any theologian I know, and more than most reformers, the theological power of underdetermination. Underdetermination means not always having to spell it all out. It means sometimes deliberately using forms of words that have layers of meaning, not just one meaning, following the tradition of John's gospel. You know, I am the door, I am the sheep, I am the bread. These are simple things with layers and layers of meaning. To say that they have one meaning is, is ridiculous in terms of John's gospel, is, is to strip it into something much less profound than it is. And Cranmer understands this. This is something that great poets do all the time. It's something the Bible does all the time. Much of the beauty of Cranmer's liturgy, I believe, comes from his poetic as well as theological sense of the long-term emotional power of underdetermination. He was able to be determined at key points when he thought it was important, but he had an instinct for underdetermination. I want to give you two brief examples of this as I come to a close. One of my favorite examples is actually from the 1549 prayer book. And I am aware that Cranmer, who wrote it, also then got rid of it in the 1552 because he was told it opened the door for Catholic views of the Eucharist that he wanted to avoid. In the prayer of consecration, bless and sanctify these thy gifts and creatures of bread and wine, that they may be unto us the body and blood of thy most dearly beloved Son, Jesus Christ. This phrase, that they may be unto us the body and blood of thy Son, to my mind, is an absolutely brilliant use of words in a way that is underdetermined without ceasing to be rich with meaning. You can say these words reverently and honestly from several different sacramental perspectives. 
imagine, so instead of, instead of saying, may they be unto us the body and blood, what if he'd said instead, may they be for us the body and blood? One little preposition difference. But that would then lean much stronger into a sense of real presence. But unto us leaves it precisely ambiguous. This is because it, it can be, of course they're going to be these things unto us if there's, if there's real presence, if, if, uh, uh, if, if Christ is really there in the Eucharist in that kind of way. But it also can mean they can be this unto us from our perspective. It brings in the matter of perspective, uh, that rather than just the metaphysical reality of what's happening. And this opens the door for more Reformed and Swiss views. To me, this is lovely Eucharistic theology. Theologically and pastorally deep, while also consistent with the sense of mystery the Eucharist is always flirting with, the sense that we don't always fully know just exactly what is going on here, and maybe we don't always need to. Second example is from the prayer of humble access. We be not worthy so much as to gather up the crumbs under thy table, but thou art the same Lord whose property is always to have mercy. I love this second clause. Thou art the same Lord whose property is always to have mercy. Cranmer is reminding us with beautiful language, perfect cadence. I mean, again and again and again, he's a poet. He's reminding us that God is merciful. He's also doing some theology with it. God isn't just temperamentally nice. Mercy here is part of God's very nature. It's a property of water to flow. It's a property of hot air to rise. It's a property of God to be merciful. But then the word always brings it back to life, back to pastoral reality. Because this is his nature, being merciful, that means God will be merciful to you every single time you need his mercy. Always implies needing it over time at different points. He won't just forgive you seven times. You may have heard this before. He'll give you, forgive you 70 times seven. So here Cranmer's saying so much and with such wide application, something you can say again and again, week after week, year after year, and still get something out of it. But he also doesn't feel the need to spell it out too much. Here he doesn't give examples. He just teaches us that God's property is always to have mercy. I could give a lot more examples of Cranmer's use of this principle of underdetermination, but I've already said a lot. I want to close just by saying I think Cranmer's attention to the subtleties of language that I've been trying to draw attention to, they are the reason, when you, when you have a liturgy, this is something that's being done over and over and over again, and this case actually was for hundreds of years, the most successful liturgy of the era. And it's like a, like a, like a car that is, you, know, you don't really know if a car is badly made until you get about 60,000 miles in. You know, these subtle things start to have an, huge ramifications and effects over time when something is used over and over and over again. And his, the reason his liturgy is so durable is because he's so attuned to these emotional uh, and semantic subtleties of words, of cadences, of what, when to say things and when not to say things. Um, and that is its genius. I don't know if I can convince the whole world to go back to the 1552, um, but certainly we can learn from it. Thank you all. You talked about underdetermination. Mm. Is there such a thing as overdetermination? Mm. Is that, I hate to talk about numbers with Christianity, but mm. the numbers are down. Mm. And is, is that one of the reasons? Hmm. People too much what they have to believe? Well, I think it's de the overdetermination is definitely a thing, and it, it is something that Protestants are, are uh, sadly subject to, um, wanting to just sort of say all the, all the stuff, 
uh, tell you everything. You know, it's, any preacher knows this temptation. You get to a passage, like, I have so much to say, and I only have a few minutes. And too often, we decide to just say it all anyway. Um, I, could, I could have said so much more uh, tonight. But um, so I think, uh, I, I do think it just doesn't work. What I'd mainly be interested in is, is what, um, so I think that churches that are actually good at this, at the emotional sort of sequence, uh, they tend to be the ones that are doing well. So I, had, I went to a church in, um, uh, in Oxford, England, a sort of charismatic C of E church, Church of England church. And uh, I found it very strange that they did the communion sort of early on, before the sermon. And then there'd be a, there'd be a lot of music at the beginning, communion, bizarrely, and then this kind of long sermon that would lead you into a slightly, like an, there'd be an exhortation kind of thing or an emotional thing, and then there'd be music. And then there'd be this prayer time, and everyone would go up and, uh, for, for prayer. It's a very common kind of sequence in charismatic churches. And although it totally bothered my sort of my, uh, prayer book sensibilities, I realized that there was actually a real logic to this. If you think the sermon is getting people ready to have this encounter with God that sort of is maximally present, really the sacrament for this, this church was, was the prayer time, not, not the, the communion, um, then then it, it makes sense to people. People are attracted to it. It, it works. Um, so there was, in its own very different, less subtle way, an affective wisdom there that I think we could learn from. And it's no surprise, I think, that a lot of churches like that, they may have many other problems, but they speak to people because they're emotionally on point. Thank you. Um, that frame of reference of looking at it with affective technology, mm. could you sort of speak to Jesus' use of stories mm. and the affective that brought, drew people in? Yes, yes, absolutely. I've been, um, I've become mildly obsessed with T.S. Eliot. My kids sort of, it's like bingo, when will I mention T.S. Eliot when I talk? But um, we got to that point. Um, one thing I've learned from spending time with T.S. Eliot, who's a great Christian poet, uh, and, and what the, the ways he's able to speak about Christianity compellingly in a modern world where it's very hard to speak compellingly, is he's so attentive to the subtleties of um, of words, I think emotion is complicated. Augustine, who thought more about emotion than anyone, uh, thought that also we're a mystery to ourselves. We don't always know what we're feeling. Often it isn't quite so simple as this sequence I've been describing um, because we are mysteries to ourselves. And, um, but there's something about uses of, uh, about symbols, about parables, uh, about um, stories that do, they capture us emotionally. They capture things we can't put our finger on or can't quite articulate or don't quite yet know that we feel. We all know this, the way that a, a song, you don't even know what the lyrics are about, and yet it makes you cry because somehow it captures this thing that you couldn't, even, even afterwards, you can't really put words to. That's just part of what it is to be a human being who is an affective creature. Um, and so, uh, I mean, it's no accident that Cranmer's liturgy is basically just a bunch of Bible quotes put together in, in, in a certain kind of sequence um, uh, because he trusts the Bible to speak at, at, at these resonances, these frequencies. Um, that doesn't mean don't say specific things and have doctrine and so on, but that there's, an, there's a wisdom in that. We're drawn to these things that speak subtly but to our, to our hearts. So um, I think Jesus' use of parables is, is absolutely doing that, saying real things, but that are also you can spend your lifetime thinking with those thoughts and still finding more depths of, of meaning. Thank you for being with us, Dr. Zoll. Um, one of the refrains that I see come up in the prayer book is for the sake of Jesus Christ, our mm. Lord. And I was wondering if you could speak to the effect of that phrase mm. in, the, in, in churning the emotions mm. throughout the, the service. Mm. Yes, I guess I think especially, I mean, he's constantly referring the emotion to the work of atonement, uh, of 
the, the, you know, the, the, the work of, um, of the cross. And I do think that it just, it gives this, emo- there's, a, there's a, again, a point in right to, I don't want to be, I mean, right to is not nearly as bad as I thought it was when I read it recently in, the, in, the, in 2024. It sounds pretty conservative. But um, the, uh, there's a part where the, one of those references is taken out. And it takes away the psychological grounding of the whole post-communion prayer because, that, they, they, because the, the reference to the atonement is gone. But doing things for the sake of Jesus Christ our Lord, I mean, that's also what, how the, the, the blessing at the end ends. And we go forth to, um, it's partly, this is all about, it's about loving God, doing things for Christ's sake. These are things that are made possible by a transformed heart, by the encounter with his love. So I think um, that is a very natural and underdetermined way of thinking about going forth is... Um, do things for the sake of Christ our Lord, is, uh, and that feels like a natural and emotionally plausible thing to do when you've had this, this powerful relationship sort of reestablished in however subtle a way through, through the liturgy. So I guess that would be my first attempt, but it'd be interesting to look at specific uh, ones too. Yes? First of all, thank you again. I must say, um, not you need to hear this from me, uh, but you are one of the most clearly and articulate uh, lecturers that I, that I think I've ever heard. So thank you. Uh, thank you. Compliment for you. Just quickly here in the general confession, mm. um, something as, as a pastor and as a priest I've thought a lot about mm. is, is Cramner's understanding of the heart and the will. Does he divide those two things? Are they related? Mm. So for instance, we have followed too much the devices and desires of our heart. Um, can you help mm. maybe us understand just the will and the heart as Thomas Cramner would, would have understood them? Thank you. Uh, I'd, I'd be happy to, to, to do my best. I mean, I think uh, as a good um, follower of, you know, someone who's been influenced by, so strongly by Augustine and, and by Melanchthon, I don't think, I think for Cranmer, the will is, and the heart are, are, are ultimately the same. So Augustine is very clear in City of God. He says, what is it to will something other than to love it? Uh, and wh- uh, that's just, he basically refuses th- this later medieval distinction between willing and, and the affective faculty is something that is really not present, I think, in Augustine. And that's that's uh, not just my interpretation. I think that's that's widely seen. Um, the uh, likewise, Melanchthon basically he just he says the will is is just it, it's almost a it's a cipher. It almost doesn't do anything. It's just it's it's the, it's the affective power he calls it that that does the work. So I think there are different ways of capturing harmonics around what is in fact the same thing for him. That would be my guess. Um, Hi, Tommy. I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about the use of the adverbs, in, mm-hmm. uh, particularly in the, there's several places on page two of your handout, you know, where it says, you that do truly and earnestly repent, mm-hmm. and in the confession, we do earnestly repent and are heartily sorry, and then mm. um, where at the beginning of the comfortable words, mm. it says here the comfortable words to all that truly turn to him, mm. and um feel like you're going to have something to say about the purpose of those adverbs and sort of this mm-hmm. effective technology. Mm-hmm. Um, but I have <clears throat> found that I struggle sometimes with letting those adverbs become something that focuses uh, the service on me. Mm-hmm. You know, have I, have I, ha- I repented, but have I earnestly repented? Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm sorry, but ha- am I heartily sorry? So Yeah, yeah. Great question. Uh, thank you. I mean, so there, there are a couple of things. Interesting. So, you know, as a, as a teacher of people who write, often uh, you, you tell students, you know, avoid adverbs. You know, adverbs are, are, are a lazy person's uh, crutch in, in writing. 
but not when you're a genius like Thomas Cranmer. He knows exactly what he's doing and when he can get away um, with it. Uh, I think it's true. I mean, you, you could read some of this as sort of he, he's, you know, are we really there yet with you? Are we really so earnest and hearty, you know, and um, uh, here? And I think uh, partly it's this conveying the sense that this is what, those are the factors that matter. It's the, the affective, the motivational, and again, this is all over Philip Melanchthon. It's, it's the motivation. It's the, the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus is saying what matters is your reasons, your intention, not just the thing you do. It's a long tradition um, uh, that, that, that these words are, are invoking. Um, the one about who, who, those who truly repent, um, that's, uh, you know, there is a sense, and there, there, what, I, what I haven't talked about are all these earlier um, these sort of exhortations to communion and so on, where there is a strong, people are worried about people coming to communion um, without really kind of wanting to and doing it and, and sort of, you know, eating, uh, you know, the bad things will happen if you take uh, communion when you're not at least wanting to repent. And I think that's a little bit at odds with what he's actually doing in, in the text, those exhortations. Um, but they, they, I think there were probably reasons at the time why those were there, but that sense, it, it, it needs to be true, it needs to be real, because otherwise it's, it's not really um, doing very much. But the other context, though, is that this is something you're supposed to say over and over and over and over again. You bring your whole life to it, year after year, and um, so you may not relate to it this week or next week or the following week, but when you need to, you will. Um, there's a, the power of, of again, Cranmer is, he's, he's, he's wise. He knows that our whole life isn't just today. It's uh, a whole rhythm of things. Um, and so I think uh, sometimes, you know, there are parts that you, that uh, me and my brothers talk about uh, how, how we found all this very boring as a kid, even though it, it, it I remember asking dad, why do we say the same prayer every week? And he was like, hmm, good question. Little did I know he had thoughts. Um, but like Cranmer, he held them back. Uh, so, and yet we all talk about how later on these words came alive to us and had been implanted in us very deeply when we were young. Uh, and so I think Cranmer understood that as well in a way that we so rarely do. Thank you. Well, let me thank you all again so much for being here, remind you and warmly invite you to the reception that is through those doors in the Beeson Commons. And let me say again, Professor Zoll, Simeon, I didn't mention as one of my dearest friends, but I can tell you now, thank you so much for being here today. It's a delight. Thank you.